So it's, it's good to be with you, church family. Um, like I think you heard, my name, is, my name is Brendan. I'm one of the pastors here. And so whether this is your church or whether you're visiting with us or whether you're joining us on the, on the live stream, um, thank, you for, thank you for being here. Thank you for uh, giving part of your Sunday to, to join us. Um, so have you ever, um, maybe you're one of these, these people or maybe you have this kind of person in your life. Um, you know the kind of people who give long answers to short questions? <laughs> so maybe, maybe you're that kind of person. I, I tend to be that kind of person. That's why they have me come up here and talk. <laughs> long answers to short questions. But like, you know, Sarah, my, my, my wife Sarah will ask me, um, ask me something like, what do you think about this? And like 10 minutes later, it's like, so is that a yes or a no? <laughs> so, you know, maybe you're that kind of person. Maybe that kind of person is, is in your life. You know how that, how that goes. Um, it turns out that the Apostle Paul is one of those people <laughs> who gives long answers to short questions. Uh, and in our, in our series that we've been kind of camping out this year in the book of 1 Corinthians, um, the Apostle Paul... Uh, we have been sort of in the middle of a long answer to a short question. Uh, and, and you know, n- you know, in defense of people like me and Paul and those of you who, who do that, uh, it's because sometimes, sometimes a short answer doesn't suffice. Like, like, yeah, I could say yes or no, but sometimes it's more complicated than that. And so I got to go and explain everything. And so that's kind of what Paul is, is doing here. Um, if you've been tracking with us through the summer, um, and you know we've had you know some, some guest preachers and things like that, but but in our First Corinthians series in the summer, um, if you go back to chapter eight in First Corinthians, Paul picked up this question that the actually that the Corinthian church had asked him that they had sent him a letter with some questions because they're all messed up about all kinds of different things, and they, they, they're confused, they got questions. And one of the questions that the Corinthian church asked Paul was about this, this issue of, can we eat food that has been sacrificed to idols? Which might seem to us like a kind of an esoteric question, like what does that even have to do with, with anything? Um, it turns out it does have a lot to do with everything about how we follow Jesus. Uh, but for them, this is a really big deal because, uh, because in Corinth, in the first century city of Corinth, um, the, the temples, the idol, the pagan idol temples in that city weren't just kind of like a church you go to on Sunday. They were the centers of community in the city. This was, uh, and all the sacrifices brought there ended up being kind of feasts that would go on. So the temples were kind of like, like restaurants. They were like hangout, like it's like a bar. People go in there to eat with their friends and eating this food sacrificed to idols. And then the, and then the temples would also be involved in selling that food in the marketplace and so this was a really big question, is, is these people had come to follow Jesus, and that, you know, they'd gotten saved, they'd been baptized, and now they're thinking, well, I, 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 can I participate in this anymore? Is this, this pagan idols, can I do that? Is it okay? Is it not? And so, in one sense, that seems like that should be a pretty straightforward question, right? Should we eat food sacrificed to idols? yes. Or no, like, th- like those are the options, Paul, right? <laughs> but Paul doesn't answer the question like that. 
And the first thing that Paul did, if you, if you recall back all the way back in, cha- in chapter 8, um, is that Paul, in seeing their question and how they ask their question, Paul sees a larger principle that's relevant, something more important than the answer to their question that he wants to address. Uh, and so, and this, this principle that he sees that they're going wrong on is this, it's that love should guide how my conscience makes these decisions. That, that love is the, is the primary virtue and the lens through which I need to be evaluating this question. And he, and he perceives in their, in their question that they're just missing this entirely. And so back in chapter one, you see on the, on the slide here, he's, you know, in chapter one he says, you know, now concerning this question you had, food sacrificed to idols, he says, we know that all of us possess knowledge. He's quoting them because they're saying like, oh, we know all about this. We got this. And Paul's like, eh, this, that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. He's like, I, I have a whole different paradigm for you. And he goes on, he says, he says yeah, we know. He's probably quoting their letter again. An, an idol has no real existence. These are empty statues. He says, however, not all possess this knowledge. Some, through former association with idols, eat food as really sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience is weak and it's defiled. So he, and so he says, take care. He's like, be careful. Don't just jump Corinthians straight to, oh, we know all about this. We got this. We can go and eat food sacrificed to idols. No problem. He says, take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. In fact, he makes it even stronger. He's like, if, if anything I do, if any food would cause my brother to stumble, I'm never going to eat meat again. Wow, Paul. It's this, this principle that, that love trumps freedom. Like, yeah, in Christ, you might be free to do this or that, but he's like, uh, love for your weaker brother or sister trumps the freedom that you think that you have and the knowledge that you think that you have. That's the principle. He's like, before he even answers the question, he's like, you've got to get this right. And then in chapter 9, he applies that principle to his own ministry. And he says, he says you know, laying down your, your rights, your freedoms for the sake of your weaker brother or sister. He's like, this is what I do. This is, this is what it's about. This is what following Jesus is about. So he says, he says, you know, we don't make use of our rights. Talking about him, his companion, his ministry. He says, we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. It says, for though I am free of all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. He's like, I, he's like following Jesus is about laying down those rights, Christian. Or as, as Oswald Chambers said it so succinctly, he says, the only right that a Christian has is the right to give up his rights. Welcome to following Jesus. And so... Paul approaches this question from a whole different direction because he sees this urgent principle. Will we be guided by love? See, Paul's way more concerned with that than he is with the answer to their question. And and really, that issue of love is going to frame the whole rest of the book. Uh, And there's a method to Paul's madness here. He isn't just going on and on for the sake of filling up scrolls. Like he, he has a really clear purpose in mind that he wants to communicate to the Corinthians and to us. There's a reason why he tackles this question this way. It's because it's because this is the issue in the Corinthian church and perhaps in the American church as well. 
that with all of our knowledge and all of our power and all of our freedom, all of our gifting, we've missed the most important thing, which is love. And so as we keep going in this book, we're going to see in chapter 11, Paul, Paul addresses the things going on in their worship services, and love is the issue. In chapter 12, he's going to talk about spiritual gifts, and he gets to 13, that famous love chapter. He says, this is the issue. Love is patient. Love is kind. It's, it's, this, is the, this is the main thing. And in chapter 14, he goes on. The whole rest of the book is going to frame these questions of spiritual gifts and spiritual power as a question of love. It's the whole rest of the book. However, before we get there, if you read chapter 8, chapter 9, you get to chapter 10 and you realize, hey, Paul, you haven't actually answered that question. Remember, Paul is one of those long-winded guys, long answer to a short question. He hasn't actually answered the question. And so now, finally, that we've got the love issue settled, can we get a straight answer, Paul? Please. Yes or no, Paul? And that's what chapter 10 is about. And so can we get a straight answer, Paul? Well, yes and no. <laughs> yes and no. That, that's, that's Paul for you. Because the way that Paul is going to answer, finally answer their question in chapter 10 still doesn't quite come down on a firm answer. Can we eat food sacrificed to idols, Paul? And Paul's answer is basically no, yes. Because as simple as that question seems, uh, it turns out it's not. And so we're going to see that the way that Paul answers this question for us, finally, is basically this. It's that faithfulness in a world full of idols. Because this world is, is, is full of idols, full of things that draw our attention away from God, our love, our obedience away from God. And in a world full of idols, faithfulness means having some caution about those idols and having some comfort in the face of those idols. This is the answer that Paul is going to give us, some caution and some comfort. So we're going to see this caution first. We're going to kind of read through this chapter, chapter 10, looking and trying to understand what Paul is saying here. So if you have a Bible, you can open up to 1 Corinthians 10. We're going to have it up on the screen here. So this is Paul's words, and we know, we believe this is also God's perfect words for us, his people. Paul says, starting in verse 1, he says, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud. We're going to talk about this. He's making a whole lot of Old Testament references here. They were all under the cloud, passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate from the same spiritual food and drank from the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they are overthrown in the wilderness. Now, you might be saying at this point, like, what in the world, Paul, are you talking about? Um, Even if you know all your Bible stories, what in the world, Paul, are you talking about? Well, what we're going to do is next week, we're uh, going to come back to this to look at how Paul is using the Old Testament in this chapter, because he's doing some really extraordinary, amazing, there's some amazing things to see about Jesus in how Paul uses the Old Testament here. Um, but for our purposes today, Paul, is, in answering their question, he refers them back to the stories 
from the Old Testament, Exodus and Numbers, about Israel's deliverance from slavery in Egypt and their years of wandering in the wilderness. And how God saved them dramatically, supernaturally, you know, like the, the plagues in Egypt, the parting of the Red Sea. That, that's, what, that's what he's referencing when he says they passed through the sea. It's the, that, that, the parting of the Red Sea and, and how God's presence was with them visibly. That, that's the cloud he mentions. And how God supernaturally provided food and drink for his people in the wilderness. And the Israelites, if, if you're at all familiar with those stories, were really awesome, amazing stories in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. But if you, um, the Israelites experienced all of that deliverance. And they, they saw God's power. And yet, their hearts were still hard. And they kept on rebelling against God and grumbling against God. And they kept preferring their idols to the God who saved them. And so in Exodus and Numbers, again and again, the stories of God judging his people and punishing their idolatry, even as he keeps saving them and rescuing them and providing for them. And so what Paul is doing here in just kind of a big, big picture is that he's referencing those stories as a reminder. As a reminder, in verse 6, he says, Now these took place as an example for us, so that we may not desire evil as they did. So it, in, even if you don't know all the stories and all the ins and outs and the cloud, and the, what's he talking about? It's all of these Old Testament stories of the people preferring their idols, preferring other things to the God who made them and saved them. And he says all those stories... Or to warn us, don't, don't do that. Don't do that. So verse 7, he says, don't be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, he quotes Exodus 32, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose to play. There, there's this big idol festival. That's the, that's the golden calf incident, if you're familiar with that. He says, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. That's a, another incident of idolatry in Numbers 25. He says, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. It's the fiery serpents episode in Numbers 21. <laughs> Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. They, they grumbled a lot. That's Numbers 11, Numbers 14, Numbers 16. They, just like us. Israelites are just like us. They grumble. They complained. And anyway, all these, these are just examples Paul's saying, hey, you know, if you've been to Sunday school, you know that story, you know that story. He's like, don't, don't do that. <laughs> don't be like those people who saw God's salvation and yet turned away to idols. In verse 11, he says, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. On whom, this is, what a phrase this is. They were written down for us on whom the end of the ages has come. Pick that up next week to talk about Paul in the Old Testament. But he says, he says all of those stories in, in the first two-thirds of your Bible, he says they were all pointing here. They were all pointing to us, to God's people living in light of Christ's resurrection, this dawning of the new creation. He's making us new, and all of those stories are for us now. And so he says, therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands... Take heed, lest he fall. 
It's a, a sober caution that Paul, that Paul gives to these Corinthians who were so confident in their knowledge and their wisdom and their spiritual power. They're like, Paul, like, we got this. Um, we, can, we can do it when we're free in Christ. We can go eat, eat some idol food in the temple. It's no big deal. We know, well, we know Jesus. And he's like, careful. Be, be careful here. that you think you've got it all together? Because if you think you've got it all together, you are in danger of falling. And so, to the Corinthians who said, and we know, we know idols, they're nothing. This is no big deal, right? Paul's caution is, yes, actually, it is a big deal. It is a big deal. Look at these stories of God's people, of how he dealt with them. Be careful here. I think Paul is saying your cavalier attitude towards holiness is like red flag. Red flag, beware of thinking that you've got it all figured out, that you've got it all together because, because church, you are not better than the Israelites. I'm not, we're, we're, not, we're not better than the Israelites. Don't we grumble just like them? We complain just like them. Don't we see God's provision and then five minutes later, we're full of worry again? Don't we come and see, you know, gather and sing and feel in God's presence and then we're going out and yelling at somebody five minutes later who crossed us? Don't we, don't we want to, to follow Jesus, to say, yes, you're my everything But Lord, there's a lot of other cool stuff out there. And my Bible grows dusty on the shelf. And other things take priority in my life. We're just like the Israelites. And so Paul says, careful. When it comes to this issue of idolatry, of loving things, other things, anything more than God, following, obeying something more than God, he says, be very, very careful here. You're not as strong as you think you are. And he says in verse 13, he says, no temptation has overtaken you that's not common to man. He's like, so this temptation to fall back into idolatry, he's like, this is, like, this is normal. Like, look at, the, look at the Israelites, look in the mirror. And a promise here, but this is a promise kind of wrapped in this sober warning. He says, God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape so that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Sometimes, this, this verse, verse 12, uh, 13, is, is one that sometimes as Christians, this is one of those verses that might be a little more well-known, that you might have this kind of in your back pocket, a promise about temptation, that God always provides a way out. He's faithful. And that's true. Because the Bible says it, that, that there is no temptation that faces you, no temptation to sin, that there is not some way out of, out of that. The problem is, I think a lot of times we don't keep reading. We just pluck that verse out and be like, oh, God's going God's to protect me in temptation. But do, do, do you see what he said? He says, God will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but he'll provide a way of escape, so run away. <laughs> It says, flee. 
often the, the way of escape from temptation is to flee. But we think, oh, I'm just going to sit back. I'm going to get comfortable with it. I can go. I can, I can be involved in this thing. It's not going to be a big deal. And that's not what that verse is saying. This verse has no promise for that. This verse has no promise of cozying up to sin and thinking it's not going to rub off. This verse is saying, is saying that temptation, the proper response to that is to run the other direction. And so this, this warning is, is to these Corinthians and to us who have the tendency to view our own sin lightly. He says, take this seriously, actually. This actually is, is a big deal. It's not a... It, it's, it, it's not a you know, this idea of the food sacrificed to idols and go and just jo- join in the party this caution. He's saying, be, be very careful how you're thinking about this. And so he, he continues, verse 14, he says, you flee from idolatry. Now he's going to bring in another thing for them to consider. He says, I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. He's like, hey, listen, straight talk here. And he brings up the idea of communion which he's going to come back to in chapter 11. He's he sort of laying the groundwork for the next thing he's going to talk about. He says, he says that the cup of blessing that we bless, you know, communion, we take the bread and the wine. He says that, that cup, is that not a participation in the blood of Christ? He says the bread that we break, is that not a participation in the body of Christ? He says because there's one bread, we who are many are one body because we partake that one bread. In, in other words, he's saying in, in communion, when we come together, God, God is here with us. And, and, we are, and we're seeing his, his body broken on the cross, his blood shed for us. And we're united together and we're united with him. It's like, it's like so there's... There's one meal. He says, God is present here. You're, you are joined with Christ here. And then refers back to the Old Testament again, verse 18. Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices, participants in the altar. He's just saying, he's saying you join in this celebration and you're part of it. What do I imply then? Verse 19. Am I saying that food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? is no, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I don't want you to be participants with demons. It's like, pick your feast. Pick your feast of the the Lord's Supper and the communion of all the saints and the celebration of God's grace and you're participating in that or you can go down the street to the idol temple and drink with all of your buddies. What are you participating in there? says you can't drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You can't partake the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? So it, we see Paul is setting up this contrast in the, in the same way that participation in the Lord's Supper means you stand with Jesus and you identify with Jesus and you say, I'm with him. Paul says participation in these idol feasts means you're standing with demons and identifying with demons, and you're saying, I'm with them. And he's like, you don't want that. 
And it's, it's easy for us to, to forget in our struggle with idols, because anybody who's been walking with Jesus for more than five minutes knows that we're going to struggle with idols, that, that idols are more than just temples and statues and pagan things. Idols are the things that we love more than God and trust more than God and obey more than God and put more weight and influence in our life more than God, things we look to for comfort and security more than God. John Calvin said the human heart is a factory of idols. We don't need pagan temples to have an idol problem. But one of the things that we can forget, I think, sometimes in that fight against idolatry, that fight to love Jesus more than I love this thing, is that there are real spiritual forces in the world opposed to the one true God, and we ignore them at our peril. And so that's why Paul Paul is bringing this up, because there is no middle ground here. Idolatry is participation in that demonic insurgency against the rightful reign of King Jesus. It's like you can't claim allegiance to the king and then join his enemies. And so this should be a sober, another sober caution to us. Uh, because we know, again, we don't have to go to a temple to go and participate in, in idolatry. We, we, many of us brought our idols with us. In, into the room. Everything and anything can be turned to idolatry. That's just one of the things that's going, that's going wrong in the human heart, that's misfiring, that's broken in our souls, is that anything and everything, good things, neutral things, can be turned to idols that we love more than God. And in this cosmic war against the reign of King Jesus, while there are many morally neutral things, there are no spiritually neutral things. Because anywhere there is idolatry, there is demonic insurgency against Jesus. And so this should be a wake-up call to say, ah, what are those things in my life even? that I tolerate, the sins that I slide up to, that I think, I, this is my little pet domesticated sin. I know it's wrong, but yeah, it's not a big deal. Um, it, that little pet domesticated sin is a little pet domesticated demon that is not domesticated. But an interesting thing to note here in verse 22, Paul's concern for the Corinthians and for us is not primarily the danger of demons and the strength of idols. Yes, there's real spiritual warfare. That's not Paul's primary warning here. Verse 22, shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? In other words, idolatry is not just a bad idea because you're standing with demons. It's a bad idea because you're standing with demons against the God of the universe. It's a bad idea because you're on the wrong side. In this war against King Jesus, Jesus wins. Jesus wins. There's no contest. And so participation in idolatry is choosing the losing side. 
Like you're on the wrong side there. You're on the wrong side of the war. You're on the wrong side of history because you are on the wrong side of the resurrection. Jesus wins. And so join the winning team. And maybe that could be a helpful reminder for some of us who struggle with our sins and think, is this either maybe this isn't a big, big deal, or maybe we think I can't get free of this. And the promise is, is that Jesus wins. Are you stronger than him? Is this sin stronger than him? Is this empty idol stronger than him? No, it is not. Jesus wins. And so coming out of idolatry and putting, saying, I want to love Jesus with all my heart, that's a daily battle, but it's a daily battle. Jesus has promised that he's going to win. So join the winning team. So this is, this is Paul's caution, his, his warning, and gets pretty close to just coming out and saying, don't do it. You know, he says, I, I don't want you to be participants with, with demons. That sound, that, that's, that's pretty close to a no, that's the answer to their question, should we do this? No. But now he, he is going to turn a little bit and give us a, something else to consider. Long answer to a short question. So we keep reading that warning. This warning, are you stronger than the God of the universe? Is going to, Paul is going to turn this from a caution to a comfort for us. As he brings his answer finally to a close. And we get to verse 23. Verse 23 now, he's going to summarize kind of everything from chapters 8, 9, and 10. He's going to be referring to this again. And so he's going to come back to this overarching principle of love from chapters 8 and 9. Love trumps freedom. Love lays down its rights for the sake of others. And so in verse 23, it's likely that you'll notice something's in quotation marks there in the text. If you have the ESV, it's like that. There's some quotation marks. That's because it's likely that Paul is referring back to their letter again. He's quoting their letter back to them. And so Paul did this in chapter 8 when he first took up the question. He quoted them back like, oh, we all possess knowledge. And Paul's like, yeah, not as much as you think. And now he's kind of going to do the same thing here. He says, all things are lawful. Yeah, but not all things are helpful, Corinthians. All things are lawful, you said. Yeah, but not all things build up. It's not just about your freedom and rights and what you can do. It's about what's helpful. It's about what builds others up. It's about love. Verse 24, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. See, we keep, we keep wanting to answer this question like, what can I do? What can I get away with? And Paul is just determined to not let us answer the question that way. Even when he says, this is a bad idea to be over here, he immediately turns around and is like, Love. What does love look like here? And now the comfort. The comfort. This is interesting because this is going to sound different than what he just said a couple sentences before. Verse 25, he says, you know, eat whatever's sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For, he quotes a psalm, the earth is the Lord's. And the fullness thereof, everything in it. 
It says, whatever's sold in the meat market. He hasn't moved on to another topic here. He's not, he's not now, he's, he wasn't talking about idolatry, now he's talking about grocery shopping. This is the same issue. Remember, from what we can tell about Corinth, the idol temples, remember, are the restaurants of the day, and then they sell, their, sell those sacrificed foods as meats in the marketplace. And so, so even going to the market in Corinth and buying some, some food for dinner is, is not as morally and spiritually neutral as you might think because this is all tangled up in, in the idol temple. This food that you're buying at the supermarket, this has been sacrificed to idols and now is on sale for you. And so if, you, if Paul thinks maybe it's not a good idea to join in that idol worship in the temple, and well, does that mean you can't eat anything in the marketplace? Do you have to avoid the entire pagan economic system? Do, do the Christians, are, can Christians only shop at the Christian butcher shops? Can they only eat at Chick-fil-A? <laughs> it's just, you're just Jesus chicken. <laughs> Not that stuff from Burger King, right? Just the Jesus chicken. And this is where Paul has some good news for us, some comfort. He says, eat, just, he said, don't worry about it. Eat whatever's in the meat market because the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. In other words, he says, it all belongs to Jesus, it's all his. Every chicken is Jesus' chicken. Every burger is a Jesus burger. Every meat, even the meat that was sacrificed to idols back there in the temple, you know who it really belongs to? It belongs to King Jesus. Because remember, Jesus wins. He has conquered every demon and every idol. Death and Satan himself are thrown down and trampled underfoot by the risen, conquering Lord. He has died for our sins. He has burst the bonds of death. He has risen to new life. And he has reclaimed all things for his own. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. Every nation, every tribe, every cheeseburger, it all belongs to Jesus. And so Paul says, while this participation in idol worship and coming and joining in those feasts, he's like, be really careful about this. This is participation with demons. He says, but those demons don't get the last word on your freedom, Christian. Jesus owns everything. So go to that shop, get that food, eat it. It's all, it all belongs to him. So how... How might we apply that in our, in our day? Because, again, it's easy to see how the idols in my life, what Paul's telling me to do is put him to death, kill him, but this promise, Jesus reigns. But I think even here, as, in, as Paul is helping Christians navigate a pagan economic system, I think there's some, some good advice for us here. Uh, because, let's face it, in our day and age, we navigate a pagan economic system and a pagan society with, with values and principles far out of line with God's word. We live in a secular society and corporations are going to do what corporations are going to do. And a lot of times you find corporations have values that are 
even sometimes just different than yours and sometimes actively opposed to yours as a Christian. What do you do? That's what Paul is telling, is answering here. What, how do you navigate that? Where do you shop? <laughs> where, where do you eat? What do you boycott? All, all those kinds of things. And so let, let me maybe give you a practical example of, of how I have tried to apply this. Maybe I'm right, maybe I'm wrong. It seems like Paul is given some wiggle room here anyway, so I feel like I'm okay even if I'm a little off base. Um, so I love coffee. I've had like six cups of coffee today. <laughs> uh, and, and I prefer Starbucks. You know, I know some of you are Dunkin' people. You're wrong, but that's okay. <laughs> we, can, we can all be one big family in Christ. I, I prefer Starbucks. Some people say it tastes burned. I'm like, well, okay, I like it burned. Uh, I, I like Starbucks. Now, Starbucks is one of those companies, like most other companies, that has values that are actively opposed to what I would stand on as the authority of God's word. So what do I do? Do I boycott Starbucks? I mean, I, is, there, is there like a chick, like I only drink Chick-fil-A coffee? Like, I, I hope I don't have to do that because no offense to Chick-fil-A, but their coffee's awful. Uh, <laughs> um, so what are, should I not shop at Starbucks? Should I not drink Starbucks because they are part of this pagan economic system? The way that I answer that, for me, again, you, you might come down differently. You can see Paul is given plenty of room here to land differently. Where I come down on this is all coffee is Jesus' coffee. All coffee belongs to him. Hallelujah. <laughs> and so I will drink my venti, frappuccino, uh, caramel, macchiato goodness with thankfulness and gratitude in my heart for Jesus. Thank you for this gift of coffee. And it's all yours. It reminds me of the, the old hymn, This is My Father's World. And seeing the blessing in this world. This world is broken. This world is sinful. This world is in rebellion against God. And yet, at the final verse of the hymn, This is my Father's world. Oh, let me never forget that though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my father's world, this is my father's coffee, this is my father's burger, and I will enjoy it with thankfulness. Now, as we keep going, he's going to give one last little application here, one little tweak to that of this love trumps freedom principle. Because he doesn't actually end there. Because if he ended there, then it would be like, okay, finally, I have an answer. I can go and eat the meat. I can go drink the Starbucks. But he's not going to even give us that quite of a simple of an answer. He said, verse 27, he says, okay, so eat whatever you want. It all belongs to Jesus. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and, you're, and you want to go, he says, eat whatever's before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. He's like, don't be that obnoxious person. Be like, excuse me, is this food sacrificed to idols? I am idol free all the time. He says, don't, don't do that. He's like, don't be that kind of person. He says, but if someone says to you, Oh, this food has been, has been offered in sacrifice. He says, then, eh, don't eat it. He says, for the sake of the one who informed you, and for the sake of conscience. He says, I don't mean your conscience. 
Because Christian, you're free. He says, but his. And, and, and it's unclear whether that means, you know, you're over at the house of an unbeliever and they're like, hey, this food is sacrificed to idols. Aren't you a Christian? What are you going to do about that? Um, or if it's the weak brother who's along with you and is like, I don't know if I can do that, but I see you doing that. It, it's unclear which scenario he's talking about there. But, but either way, either way, he's saying, all right, that Starbucks that, that belongs to Jesus, drink that Starbucks. But you know what Jesus loves more than all that coffee he owns? You know what Jesus loves more than the whole world of stuff that he has purchased back for himself and owns it all? You know what Jesus loves more than that? That brother or sister in Christ. The one for whom Christ died. And Jesus' love for them is greater than his love for all the stuff in his world. And so Paul says, even here, let your freedom be guided by that love. So don't drink the Starbucks, or do drink the Starbucks, or eat the food sacrificed to idols, or don't eat the food sacrificed to idols. Love. Trust in Jesus who owns everything. Love for him, supreme over all, and love for my brother and sister who might struggle. That's Paul's answer to the question. And I think that's what's going on here. It's, it, as, at the end here in verse 29 and 30, I think this is a rhetorical question that, that Paul's asking. The commentaries are split on this, but it seems that he's, he's asking a rhetorical question. Why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? Because that's kind of the objection that's left at this point. And the answer is because that's what love does. That's what love does. So if I can have the worship team come forward, because in verse 31 now, we finally arrive at Paul's conclusion to the answer. Paul summarizes it all like this. Chapter 8, 9, and 10, this seemingly endless discursive answer to what we thought was a simple question. Do we eat food sacrificed to idols? All of this comes down to verse 31. He says, so, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. And so he concludes, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Love for people above love for stuff. So maybe we could think of it this way, as a way to, to finally answer the question of what do I do with, in a world of idols? How do I remain faithful in a world of idols? And you know that this is a little cheesy, but it works. You know the, the acronym JOY? JOY gives you a nice little order of what your priority should be. Jesus, others, you. You might have heard that. It might be a little cheesy, but it's true. You know where joy is found? You know where faithfulness in a world of idols is found? Jesus, others, you. And so love for, for God, supreme above all. That's freedom from idols. And you're free now in love with God to do, any, to do all these things. Eat that food, drink that. However, that is guided by love for others. 
love for others, always sacrificing what you want to do out of love for others. And finally, last, not least, comes you and the stuff that you love and the coffee that you drink and the food that you eat and whatever. Jesus, then others, and then you. And this, then, is how we glorify God. Verse 31, you know, is another one of those verses sometimes we like to pluck out of context. But this is Paul's answer to the question. This is how we glorify God. By living like everything really does belong to him and laying down anything that gets in the way of others knowing him. Let's say that again. This is how we glorify God. By living like everything really does belong to him and then laying down anything that gets in the way of others knowing him. And this is how God gets glory from our life. This is, this is the life that puts Jesus on display as valuable, as worthy of trust, as worthy of praise. A life that's free and sacrificial in, in its love. This is the offering that God wants from us. We can stand. I want us to sing, sing this great song, this song, Glory to God Forever. I, I, I love this, this, this triumphant declaration. And let, let this declaration, Father, be, be out of hearts that long for this to be true. Lord, we, our hearts are idle factories. We know that there's so much in our lives that doesn't measure up to what we're about to sing. But Lord, let the, these words... Let my whole life be a blazing offering, a life that shouts and sings the greatness of our King. Oh, Lord, have that offering from our lives as we live as free children of the King and as we live as servants laying down our lives for one another. Oh, Lord, do this in our hearts. Do this in our church. Do this for the glory of your name. We pray in the great name of Jesus, we pray and now we sing, amen.